And welcome to Tell Me Your Story, New Paradigms for a New World. I'm Richard Dugan, your host, and I really thank you for joining us on the program today because we're going to get a look at the world from a whole different perspective. We're going to be looking at it uh, through the eyes of a couple who have put together a very unique program, Powerful You. It is time to evolve, folks. That is what they are saying. We're going to find out what they mean by that. They have a film out as well as a book called Perception. Perception, seeing is not believing. It is time to evolve. And I want to welcome James uh, Perpera to our uh, program today. Thank you very much for joining us again. Richard, how are you? I'm doing very well. Um, once again, uh, just letting you know that your level is a little on the hot side there, but uh, we'll uh, we'll work that out as we go here. Uh, first of all, uh, this this is a this is more than just a book and a film. Uh, this powerful you is how do I put this? It's a, a training program. It's a philosophy. Help us to define that. So it's a philosophy, really. It's a philosophy based on the study of perception and emotions. Okay. And how did you come up with this? Well, you know, actually, it was out of desperation because, you know, my wife and I were in pretty, pretty severe circumstances. You know, she had a brutal suicide attempt. Um, I was sitting in solitary confinement as as a means of, you know, paying back for being a homeless drug addict, you know, in jail. And, you know, shortly after I got out of jail, we met and we both promised each other that we would rebuild our lives. And, you know, we didn't have any information. So, you know, we really wanted to understand what the creative elements of our lives were. And that's how we landed on perception and emotions after a very long period of time, I must say. Is any of this uh, uh, patterned after some of the, uh, we'll call them the personal growth and development programs, say along the lines of the seven, the eighties and nineties, that uh, um, even I went through uh, back in the early eighties. I went through uh, sort of a program like that. I I refer to them as personal growth and development programs. They may have called them something a little different. So actually, no, it isn't. So. One of the things, the shortcomings, I think, of the personal development space is they tell you what to do, but they don't tell you why to do it. And for me, the information on why is everything, because if I don't understand why I'm doing something, then I don't understand the cost of not doing it. And so essentially what we here's what we determined. You know, we spent years and years and years talking through issues, you know, working with each other to try to rebuild our lives and. When we got to the end of the journey, what we figured out was is there's two principles that dictate everything that you do, everything that you are, everything that you experience, and that give your your life the only meaning they have. And those two per- principles are perception and emotions. So understanding how perception and emotions work is literally like the difference between being blind and having sight. Because I feel like, you know, there's a lot of debate out there about what's the creative elements of our lives, but this isn't a secret, right? And so, in a sense, what we wanted to discover was what are the principles that really dictate how our life experience is going to turn out and how we create our lives consciously. And of course, 
uh, it is implied then, if if not said uh, directly, that right now most of us are creating our lives unconsciously, right? Well, and that's just it, you know. And here's how we can here's how we can look at this, right? I think most people are pretty shocked by their results. They look at their lives and they feel like they don't make sense. But that's actually that kind of proves the point in the sense of, you know, everybody's on a path to somewhere. Right. And you don't have to be a you know mathematical genius to figure out where your path is taking you. And so a lot of people don't, you know, even bother or want to change. And in my estimation, the reason that is is because they haven't calculated the cost of not changing. And so, you know, there's a theory where you can take a look at your current patterns in your life with some very easy math and see that if you don't take action to change, you know, your current path, you may end up somewhere that you not only don't know where you're going, that you don't want to be. And so I would put it like this. It's like, you know, it's like you have a relationship path. Are your relationships better or worse than they were a year ago? Right. And if they continue that current trend for one year's five years, 10 years, where are you going to be? You have a money path. You know, do you have more money than this time last year or do you have less money, right? And what's the trend? If you push that trend out in the future, are you going to be in more debt? You're going to be less debt, right? And, you know, so on and so forth to the point where you shouldn't, you know, you have a health path and a fitness path. And so people get to the point in their lives where, you know, they had a heart attack, let's say, or, you know, they have heart disease, it's like, well, you smoked and drank and ate terrible for 30 years. You know, what did you think was going to happen? And I don't mean to be insensitive, but it's like they're shocked by it. Oh, my gosh, why me? God, why me? Why am I being punished? And the truth is there is no mystery to life. I used to install cable. And I remember when I was being in training, they were like, there's no magic in cable. And I'd be like, well, what does that mean? It means you either have a connection or you don't, period. If you don't have a signal, there's a break in the connection. And it's the same way with life. There really is no magic in life. If you aren't getting the results you want, it's not because, you know, you haven't figured out some magic formula or, you know, somebody, you know, some deity is punishing you. It's because you haven't figured out the mechanisms by which you create your existence. And therefore, you're not wielding those mechanisms freely to create the life that you desire. So this has nothing to do with what a lot of people might talk about are the rules of life. You know, if I only knew the rules on how this game was played, well, then I would have a much better life and uh, things would flow a lot better if I knew how to, how this game was played. Is it or is it not the same thing? Well, it is to a very certain degree. There are a couple of things that dictate your experience, right? Mm-hmm. And the first one is perception and the second one is emotions, Um, when you have a fundamental understanding of how perception works, you have a fundamental understanding about how life works and emotions are your feedback mechanism that once you understand them, guide you along the way. They tell you if you're going towards the things you want or you don't want, but because we haven't taken the time to understand these principles, then we are literally are flying blind. Mm. So. The process that you went through, uh, the, the, I, I like to use the phrase catalytic moment. Uh, I mean, you did describe your life prior, uh, but was, what was, the, was there one particular moment or was it nothing more than a reflection back on your life 
that said, this isn't working for me. I want something different. I want something, what, better, uh, 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 more at peace, and so on and so forth. Well, so the catalytic moment for me was I was sitting in my jail cell, and I don't know if I told this story prior, but there was a moment in time, and I used to write these really long lists of people who I felt like had harmed me so that I could go in and offer them some forgiveness. Well, one day I was looking at this list, and I had this epiphany. I looked down, and I thought to myself, the only common denominator between all of those situations is me. And I'd never really considered the fact of whether or not I was the creator of my experience. It never even really popped into my mind. And so the thought popped in, well, did I create these experiences or didn't I? You know, am I the creator? And so I thought, well, I couldn't have created some of them and not all of them. I'm either the creator of my experience or I'm not. And so as I started to think about that, I thought, well, what if I'm not the creator of my experiences? Then, you know, as I thought about it, I was like, well, that means because a lot of bad things have happened to me that the world really is a terrible place and I probably don't want to play anymore. But what if I was, in fact, the creator of my experiences? And the thought I had was, well, if I could figure out how I went about creating those experiences, then I could create something new and incredible in its place. And but that meant I had to take responsibility for all this stuff on the sheet and I had to stop blaming these other people. And. It was on that day that I took my power back that I decided that I was the creator of my experiences and that I was going to figure out what it was that created my experiences. And so there was a follow-up question I asked myself is, you know, I had been through some abusive situations as a child and I was like, does my abuse define me? And then I thought, well, if my abuse defines me, I can't go back and change the abuse so I'm stuck forever. So the next question I asked was, well, has everyone who's ever incurred or had abuse allowed it to define them? And the answer to that question was no. So my abuse doesn't, in fact, define me or would have defined everybody. So what did define my experiences? And this is what I came to is it must have been what I chose to believe about myself because of the abuse. And so there's a lot of talk about forgiveness out there, but I have a different version of forgiveness than most people. Forgiveness for me has nothing to do with the other person, right? Because whatever they did is on them, and I leave that to them. I go back, and I look at the situation, and I see what did I choose to believe about myself that wasn't true having lived through this situation. And so my abusive situation was in kindergarten. You know, I was called by my teacher every single day. She told me I was stupid. She told me I was dumb. Made the whole class call me dumb when I was on my way out of the class to to, uh, special ed. And so that was the abuse, but the things I chose to believe about myself is that I was dumb, that I was not good enough, and that I was never going to be as good as everybody else. And that's what created my experience based on the law of perceptions. It was my beliefs. It was the things I chose to believe about myself. But here's the good news, Richard. I can always go back and change my beliefs. Okay. I want to go, I want to dig just a little deeper here uh, to ask you about those influences that allowed you while sitting in your jail cell to start asking these kinds of questions because there are people who sit in jail for life and never come to the awareness and the awakening if you will that you did i mean these questions just didn't come out of the blue did they 
or was was God well, talking to you in that respect? And I'm not, I'm not. And again, I wish I would have come to the. It would have been a lot uh, shorter yeah. trip if he was. No, a, I wasn't. And great respect. I, I, sh- I am. I'm. All, I, I have great respect for what you have created, uh, and that's kind of why I ask the questions because I think people need to know. Well, what the heck was it that that touched James? You know, was he touched by God or the 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 angels or an alien? I mean, I mean just because people like to know where sometimes where the information comes from. Okay, so so let me kind of so shortly after getting to jail, I get a letter from my dad, and here's what the letter says: I don't know how long you're going to be there, but most people, most adults, don't get a chance in in their lifetimes to work on themselves. Don't let this time to go to waste. You know, I'm gonna apologize for my dogs in the background. I'm doing social distancing, so. I understand, no worries. Yeah, so um, that's what's going on. I'm at home. So the, the, so that, I took that letter to heart and I thought to myself, maybe I need information, right? And so here's the catalyst for people and I'm gonna give them the idea right, is the only thing I knew was that I didn't know anything, right? And that is the catalyst. So people think that life is about finding answers, but that's not actually true. Life is only ever about asking the right questions. When you ask the right questions, answers come. And so I tell people all the time, they're like, well, where do I start? I'm like, you have to start by admitting that you're wrong. And they're like, well, what am I wrong about? I'm like, just about everything. <laughs> right? That's the good news. And they're like, well, what do you mean? I'm like, if you're right all the time, then your current life is the best it's ever going to get. Because nothing interesting starts with an answer. It only ever starts with a question. And so the reason people are stuck is because they're obsessed with being right. And our culture is obsessed with being right. Well, I was pretty clear in that day that I was pretty much wrong about everything. And so I was a fresh slate and I became very open to new information. So I got books on spirituality. I got books on self-help. I got books on meditation. And, and so I started consuming information, right? But, you know, that's not where it ended for me because, you know, there is a lot of information out there. But, you know, I, I used to go into this community that I used to hang out with. And, you know, it was like everybody there knew it was like a, one of these manifestation communities. And everybody there knew all the wonderful words, but none of them applied it to their lives. Right. Because they just didn't get into the application of it. So I wanted information. I wanted to know how it worked. But I wasn't satisfied with telling me what to do. I wanted to understand why something worked how it worked. Because if, it, if I didn't understand how and why, then I couldn't duplicate it. And so I really got into this, this flow of really trying to dig in and understand all the processes underneath. You know, I remember I read a book by Ram Dass, I think it was like Be Here Now or something. Mm-hmm. And what I, what I, you know, it wasn't a particularly great book, but, <laughs> but what I liked about the book was this concept that the the world that he talked about that was inside of him was much bigger and more intense than anything I'd experienced outside of me. Mm. And so I started to become aware that there is an inside world, right? And that, you know, there's things going on inside of you and that those things may in fact impact what's going on outside of you. Well, there are a lot of people right now who are listening to this program 
who have been suffering through, uh, I'll call it the melees in one sense, uh, of, of a, a, what has been called by the powers that be a global pandemic. And at the time of this conversation, uh, the United States is in like the second or third week of uh, some very serious uh, uh, actions being taken to help to minimize that. And I myself uh, and my wife, we, know we're, we live in an area that thus far, although it may or may not remain this way, uh, hasn't had a case yet in this small little fishing village of ours. But at the same time, you know, our, our, our industries, our businesses have been impacted. I'm lucky that uh, the station is still going and moving forward, that we're able to provide information to the public about what's going on. And, you know, we're taking the necessary precautions, but it starts to wear on us psychologically. It's like this is we've never been in this kind of a situation before as individuals, uh, as a community, let alone as a country. So I'm curious as to those messages that start to pop up as to uh, what we can or cannot do as individuals um, to live our lives and be productive and live out our life's purpose. Uh, I mean, you know, you just mentioned the fact that you're ex uh, you're exercising uh, social distancing, you know. And, uh, you know, my wife and I try to do that, but it's kind of hard in bed, you know. And you <laughs> uh, I mean... I I mean, I got to be honest with you, I, I haven't been really good about it because I just don't think that the current uh, data supports the response um, because we don't have enough data on what's going on. But that that doesn't matter. Right. We really need to. That's just my opinion. Sure. At this point, when the show airs, there might be a whole different set of data. Because right. It just started right now. Right. Mm -hmm. Right. And, I'm not here to talk about the political conspiracies no, 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 behind not at it all. and everything else. Although I do have some opinions. Sure. We're not going to go there. No, no, no. But let's talk about the fear. Yes. Right? So I went to the grocery store yesterday morning, early, right? I'm going to, you know, early riser. And I go in the grocery store, and there's nothing but senior citizens in the store. And they are searching the aisles for toilet paper. Why isn't there any toilet paper? I don't know, because people, you know, our age went out and bought it all, and people are filling their garages full of toilet paper, right? Now, here's what's interesting. Does anybody think they need hundreds or thousands of rolls of toilet paper in some people's cases? And, you know, I saw an article, somebody had 12 years worth. I accidentally <laughs> bought 12 years worth of toilet paper. And literally, there are people in my neighborhood I've driven by, and their entire garages are full of toilet paper. And, and I'm going, why are they doing that? At first... I just thought people weren't, you know, like were being stupid, for lack of a better term. But then something struck me, and here's what it is, is most people live with a level of fear that's just below the surface and it's manageable. When something like this comes along, it pushes that fear beyond the unmanageable point, right? And even though they know they don't need any more toilet paper, they're driving around all day trying to find more toilet paper. And it's like, wow, well, why? It doesn't even make logical sense. And it's because they've been, they've been put into to a state where they believe that their survival is at stake. 
And let me tell you something about fear. And this is, you know, what most people don't understand, okay? Is that when you are in a state of fear, there's there's three components to it. There's there's the perception or idea, there's the physiology, and then there's the biology. We're not going to talk about the biology. We're going to talk about the perception and the in the physiology of fear. So the physiology of fear is this: when you are in a fight or flight response, you actually move your brain and your body into a lower sense of awareness. You do not have access to the higher parts of your brain. And so essentially what happens is that the perception of fear is the idea or the, that's keeping you in fear. The physiology of fear is what you feel in your body, like your chest tightens up, your stomach tightens up. You know, you get this response and you get scared. And so when you are in the physiology of fear, you can't actually process the perception of it because you don't have access to the part of your brain that is necessary in order to do so. So this is what Albert Einstein meant by you cannot solve a problem at the level of consciousness it was created. And you literally don't have access to the higher levels. So the, the question has to be, well, how do I move out of the physiology of fear enough to gain access to my mind that can reason through the logic of this thing? And that's where, you know, turning off the flight or flight response comes in. And it's actually deep heart-based breathing. You know, there's a lot of things that walk down the physiology of fear. You know, it's like walk in nature, listen to beautiful music, pet a dog. But the easiest and fastest way is deep heart-based breathing. And so I would also explain it this way to addicts, right? So when you're an addict, basically what happens is, is that you have a perception of the thing you're trying to escape and then the physiology comes up. But in between the moment that that happens, there's always a space, there's always a gap. There's always an opportunity, that gap to say, I don't wanna do this. But because we get caught in these patterns, we don't, we don't move into or even realize that opportunity is there. And so it's like, I get into this state where you know my addiction is all over me and now I'm gonna go use whatever it is, you know, a computer, whatever, right? And it's like, there is a gap there. And in that gap, you have the opportunity to separate the perception from the physiology. And the way you do that is you start breathing very deeply. In through the nose, out through the mouth, take a bunch of deep breaths, right? And see if there's a willingness to back that off. And, and, and I'll be honest with you, in most cases, there isn't. But if once you become aware of that process, what happens is, is, is that when the physiology of fear and the perception of fear come together, if you recognize what I'm saying right now is happening to you, and you watch what happens when you don't back it down, and you see the way that you act in that state, then eventually, that when you tie those things together, that course of action becomes too costly. And you're like, well, I don't want to do that again. I don't want to go to the store and buy more toilet paper. I don't want to, you know act out of my addiction. I don't want to do whatever I do when I'm angry. And so because that becomes too costly, then you have choice. And so when fear gets teed up in your system and those, you know, all those markers start, the alarms start going off inside of you, in that gap, you can actually walk down the physiology through deep breathing for as long as it takes to get out of the body sense of it. And then once you do, once you feel that shift in your physiology inside of your body, 
what happens is, is that you actually move into that higher state of awareness where you can process your perceptions or ideas fully and they won't pattern or loop on top of themselves. Hmm. What you described at the beginning about uh, the inability to access uh, the intellect, if you will, uh, when you're in fear, it's kind of like when you go into that flight or fright mode, uh, it's like all the windows and doors are closed and you're trapped inside and you don't have any light. <laughs> but as soon as you, like you say, maybe do that deep breathing and you start, what would you refer to that as a heart, deep heart breathing? Heart-based breathing. Heart-based. So you have to think about it. Yeah. So think about it in the way of our survival. When we were like, you know, predators and prey, right? So if you were running from a predator, what is the first thing that you have to do once you stop? You've got to catch your breath. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because you're yeah. wheezing. <laughs> you're wheezing. Yeah. Right. And so what happens is, is that you're right. You're breathing really, really heavy. Well, here's what most people don't understand is your brain, your heart sends more signals to your brain than your brain sends to your heart. And so now that you've lost connection with the higher parts of your brain, your brain can't take the connection back. Your body has to signal your brain that you're safe. And the way you do that is by breathing deeply into your heart, like deep chest breathing. And that's the signal for your brain to take back control of your mental faculties. Mm. It seems simple. It does. But when you're in that fear mode, it's not simple. Um, so so if if I am in that fear mode, that flight or fright mode, <clears throat> flight or fight, I think this is the um, is that right? The flight or That's fight. Right. Yep. Um, if I'm there, how where am I accessing the information that says, OK, you're in fear, but you need to get out of fear in order to solve this problem. Uh, so breathe. Where am I? I, I is, isn't that still part of that intellect? Or is this something that you ha literally have to train yourself uh, to feel the fear and then try to remember uh, or have some flashcards? I, I'm trying to figure out how, to, how okay, that so works. Here's, so there is always a gap. Our system, there's a gap. Okay, so it's like, you know, like an addict, you know, whatever they're trying to escape from comes up, right? And it gets all over their body and they're like, maybe I should use. There's always the thought that maybe I shouldn't either. It always exists, right? Because they don't want to do that. But that gap provides the opportunity. Now, here's the truth, Richard, is the first step is the awareness that the fear has taken over. And then once you understand that the fear has taken over, you're still going to choose the fear. It's just going to happen. It's so automatic. Mm. But when you have the awareness of that's what's going on, then you have the awareness that whatever happens next, that, that, that was tied to that moment. Because we like to compartmentalize everything that's going on in our lives, right? And so when you tie those two things together, this is how the human experience works, is we, we learn through pain. When you realize that the pain associated with that experience is so great of not choosing out of it, the next time that comes up, that gap will be more pronounced because you have this information. 
And that's the awareness we're talking about. Once you become aware to what's going on, mm. then you're kind of like watching it unfold and you're like, holy crap, that's what that guy said on that radio show. Yeah. He said, and it's like, well, what happens? Well, I'm going to get angry anyway. But then you see what that choice produced. And, and eventually you don't want to deal with that pain because the pain that you ex that was created out of the actions that you took in fear will be much greater than that that choice not to breathe in that moment. Yeah. And so you're training yourself through the idea of awareness to see, you know, from an observer, like what happens when I don't breathe? Oh, that's not good. And it's like, that becomes too costly at some point. And then it's like, well, next time I'm going to try to breathe because I don't want to experience that again. Yeah. So there is a, a training aspect of to it, but you actually have to get into that mode in order to start to to practice it and, and put it into practice so that then it, it sort of you'd like to think that at some point it sort of becomes second nature. As soon as you start feeling the fear. OK, we're going to calm it down and we're going to find the solution. We're yes, gonna, we're going to fix the problem. And the uh, first step is yeah. in training. It's just awareness. Yeah, it's just being aware. It's like. You can't unheard hear what I just said. So the next time that come anger comes over to you to your listeners, just watch what results. You'll see the gap, yeah. and then you'll watch what your anger creates, and then you'll tie those two things together and go, "Well, I don't want to have that experience again. So maybe next time I should breathe." Because we learn through pain, yeah, right. And it's like, well, what pain's greater? Well, we don't actually know because we don't tie the two things together. Yeah. Right. Because we, we think that everything's compartmentalized and that's where awareness comes into the equation. So the awareness is what's going to happen. And I have to tell you that that uh, for me, I think that I did build that up in myself um, in terms of the fear dealing with wildfires here in the Santa Barbara in the California area. I remember the very first wildfire that I experienced was in 2006. Now, I saw off in the distance over several mountain ranges, this little tiny puff of smoke. I had no points of reference as to how far away it was. I freaked out. Oh, my God, we need to call somebody. because that, uh, you know. And I didn't know who to call. We had just moved to, to Santa Barbara. I mean, literally a month earlier. And I didn't know what to do. I was like a chicken with his head cut off. Uh, and I don't tell that story to my chickens because I, I don't want to cause them any. Freak them out, yeah. Don't want to freak them out. Um but as each successive fire came along, the fear became less and less because I knew who to call. And now I'd still get maybe a little anxious, but I'd said, no, no, grab the phone. And all right, uh, calm down because your hand is shaking. You know what to do. So just do it. You know, and I remember one of my my very first general manager uh, in radio told me back in like 79 or 80 when I was learning how to run the equipment and I would start to panic. This is what she would tell me to do. She says, look, I, I know that you're, 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 you're about ready to panic here. Here's what I want you to do. Hold on. Hold on to the panic for a moment. Just set it aside over here. Take care of this. All right. And once you've taken care of this, pick that panic up. You can go over in the corner and you can have your little panic party. That's what yeah. she would tell me to do. Of course, I never went in the corner to have the panic party because I'd fixed the problem. And so there was no need to panic anymore. 
and that's really what happened with me and and wildfires to where now it's it's not fear it's actually frustration like oh god here we go again come on you know <laughs> well and so there's so here's what's interesting so here's here's what most people don't realize right is that the reason the human being is the apex predator is not because we're the strongest and it's not because we're the smartest right it was actually our ability to take control of our physiology in the opposite direction. So what we would do is, before we go out on a hunting party, we would project our fear into the future, right? Like I could be attacked any moment, and we put ourselves into a heightened state of awareness, meaning that we would you know, get ourselves teed up like, okay, I'm ready for an attack. All other animals only go into fight or flight when the threat appears. They don't have the ability to heighten their state of awareness around attack and move themselves into that. And so we survived as a species by being able to take our fear, project it into the future to get ready for an attack that has not come yet. Right. And that's what gave us our edge over the other predators. Now, it's actually the thing that's killing us. So you don't have to wait to go into fight or flight to take control of your physiology. Because what we have to do, the, the reason I say it's time to evolve, it's time to evolve to walk that backwards. We're no longer fighting for our survival. So our system has been trained to do this whole process automatically. Now we have to take control of that system to walk our physi- physiology backwards. And that's what most people don't understand. But there is a statistic that supports this. And it's 70 or 80% of the most successful people in the world do one thing every day. Do you know what that is? No. They meditate. Oh. Right? And so it's like, well, why do they meditate? You ask them, they're like, I have no idea. I was just told, my mentor told me to meditate, and I meditate every day. Well, why doesn't everybody else if that's true? Because meditation's hard. Because we made meditation about literally about clearing our minds, but but that's not what meditation's about. Mm -hmm. Meditation was about the breathing, right? And so what happens is, is that unbeknownst to them, by doing a deep breathing practice every day or every night or both, that they are walking back their physiology. Now, you'll know this, Richard. It's a lot easier to go from 50% triggered to 100% triggered than it is to go from zero to 25 Right. And so essentially what happens is, is that these people that have these daily meditation practices or breathing practices are literally going in and taking control of their physiology. And if you heard like Wim Hof, you know, he goes in and he does all this breathing exercise and the guy can take control of his physiology so much he can he can climb Mount Everest in shorts because he's in his mind is taking control of his body. And so oftentimes I tell people, well, who's driving the car, your mind or your body, right? Because when you drop into fight or flight, you're in your body state. When you pull out of that, you're in your mind state. So what the most successful people in the world have done is they've taken control of their physiology and they've walked themselves to a much less triggered state so that they are not living at the behest of everything around them. They're just very calm. And they're not to say they don't ever not get calm. But like I said, it's a lot easier to go from 50% trigger to 100% trigger than it is to go from zero to 25. Mm. And then they reset it again and reset it again. 
And so we actually have a technology that we're going to release in a couple of months. It's called Vital Neuro, which is a headset that's medically, it's, uh, it's medical-grade neurofeedback with scientifically designed music that will shift your physiology in 15 minutes and make you, make, put you into a very deep meditative state. Mm. But the key is that it shifts your physiology. So here's some tools to shifting your physiology. And this is really important. Look, walking your dog, walking in nature, listening to beautiful music, right? Like things that you enjoy. Some people love gardening, right? Yeah. I don't like it at all, but you know, <laughs> um, you know, meditating, right? Yeah. It doesn't have to be meditation, deep heart based breathing yeah. every morning. If you spend 10 minutes just breathing really deep, your physiology really gets into a, a routine where it is in a very balanced state. So there's, there's actually one more re really weird and strange thing that it really comes down to physiology. And so I don't know if you know this or not, but there's massive depression and suicide rates that are, that are going on in the United States. Mm -hmm. And it's like the highest suicide rate right now is girls between 10 and 14 years old. Wow. Can you believe that? What were you doing at 10 or 14 years? I mean, we're talking about our crush. They're killing themselves. Yeah. Why? And here's why. Here's what people don't seem to understand. The biggest problem facing us as a species is that fight or flight was only meant to be used periodically. It's kind of like overdrive on your car or, you know, Scotty saying to or, you know, Captain Kirk saying to Scotty, you know, move all, you know, cut all power, move it all to thrusters. And right. so what happens in your body when you go into fight or flight is that your digestion slows your throat stops working, your lungs open up, your heart rate expresses. And so we're spending all day in the system. Now, here's the problem is that when you are in fight or flight, you are literally burning blood glucose in order to survive. And so that's the sugar thing, right? Yeah. But here's the problem. How many of us wake up more tired than we go to sleep? Oh, man. And so the question is why? And here's why is because even when we're sleeping, our body is not repairing itself because what does it need to repair itself? Blood glucose. Well, you burned it all off because you were in fight or flight all day long. And so the reason that we're having this math, massive mental health crisis, even with our children, is that even though and this people are shocked when they hear this, we are living in the safest time in recorded history. Everybody feels like we're living in the most dangerous side time. Well, why? Because of the globalization of the news. When we were kids, Richard, what happened? You had the local news station, right? You know, the newspaper was telling yesterday's news and maybe one national station. Now we have bad news to our phone all day long, every day. We're hearing about school shootings. We're hearing about bombings. We're hearing about terrorists. And so, and because we feel unsafe, we make our kids feel unsafe, right? Mm -hmm. And so our kids are being thrown into fight or flight at a very early age, and they're staying in that system, and that's why we actually have the obesity problem in kids. Richard, how many overweight kids were in your elementary school? I don't remember. Maybe maybe one. Maybe there was two. one. Yeah. One in mine as well. You know why? And I know that because I still remember her name because it was so shocking. I, I was like, it didn't make sense. And I ate Lucky Charms for breakfast, right? Kool-Aid for lunch, Pop-Tarts. Our diet was terrible in the early 70s. And it's like, 
well, how come we weren't overweight and they are? Is because their systems are shutting down because they're in fight and flight. And these are systems that are only meant to be used periodically. So the first shift or evolution we have to make as a species is people, you need to take control of your physiology. You have to walk yourself out of fight or flight on a regular basis and everything in your life will calm down. Now, the, the second side of it is this. So we have a, one of my partners owns a company called Advanced Brain Technologies and he's got a music program that will, will change your physiology. Now, as long as you're using the, phys- the music program, you're good. And it seems like all your issues go away because you're not in a heightened physiological state. But that's when we have the opportunity to work through all the issues is when we're in that state. And if we don't, as soon as we stop doing the activity that is changing our physiology, all the issues will reset. You know, this is extraordinary information. And uh, I, I find it extraordinary that it is possible for us to do the things that we need to do for ourselves because by staying in these these I'm going to call them altered states as it were because as you said they are only they were only supposed to be for a certain short period of time and we're doing ourselves a great disservice we're doing ourselves a great deal of harm uh we're I mean we're killing ourselves is what we're doing by Having the perceptions that we have, for example, what you just said, we're actually living in the safest time ever in human history, as opposed to the perception that we could die at any second uh, kind of thing. And eventually, eventually, I'd like to think that we'll be able to get that message across to more and more people, which is one of the reasons why. We have you, James Perpera, here on the program talking about perception. Seeing is not believing. Um, Let's uh, talk a little bit about uh, belief. In my conversation uh, some time ago with Greg Braden, we talked about the healing power of belief. And at one point, uh, we were in our conversation, he made the statement that someday we will transcend belief to just knowing. We will just know. We won't believe it. We'll just know it. So is your feeling that at some point along the way, we won't have to go through this process of uh, that, we, that we will awaken to a level of, uh, and I've, if I'm correct in the right word here, perception that we'll just know, hey, that, that's the reality as I perceive it is. And we can actually change our perception of whatever it is that we're looking at, right? I mean, you could be looking at a... I lived in Arizona. I lived in Phoenix, and we used to get dust storms, nothing the size of what they get now. Uh, but uh, y- you might look at that and go, oh, my God, we better get the lawn furniture and run, run, as opposed to, wow, that's, that's really extraordinary. That's a, I'm going to get inside so I don't get all dusted, but that is really fascinating to watch this, this, this force of nature, this power. I wonder if there's a way to harness that. You know, I mean, starting to think differently about the things that we're experiencing, right? So, yeah, so we're going to go really deep right now, and I'm going, to, I'm going to put you into the confines of my mind and the way I think. Okay. Because I think that at some point we may be able to move outside of perception. Ah. And here's why. is because, you know, I was in my meditation a couple of weeks ago, and I was sitting there, and I was like, is there something more here that I'm missing? The answer is always yes, but 
And if so, how would I see it? And so, you know, you mentioned Greg Braden, you know, there's also like Eckhart Tolle. And Eckhart Tolle talks about the power of the now, mm-hmm. which I doesn't make sense to me. Right. I mean, not in the least the way that he explained it, because it's just like, I know that I'm now I know that I don't have power. Then it's like, but how do you get into the power of the now? Right. Why, how do you be in the present? And so what is the present? And I thought to myself, well, is there more here that I'm not experiencing? Right. And then I I'm sitting there in my meditation. I'm going deep and I'm like, well, what am I experiencing? Right. And I'm experiencing the world through perception the way I expect it to be. There's expectations. Right. And I'm like, because that's what perception does. It's trying to always your mind is a a a probability calculator. It's trying to calculate what's going to happen next so that you can avoid danger. That's what perception evolved to do. So we don't see reality because if we saw reality, that meant that, you know, if you had to question if that was a predator in the bushes, then you're already dead, right? So that we had to project mm-hmm. that into the future to figure out what was going to happen next so we could make the split-second decisions we needed in order to survive. Now, the question is, what's reality? And so based on perception, reality is whatever your mind formulates it to be based on your past experiences. But I thought to myself, well, what is that? It's an expectation. Could I step outside of my expectations, right? And so what an expectation would be is that here's what I see most people doing is that they're constantly, you know, viewing what is and denying what is to try to force it to be what they think it is. Because anytime you're wrong from a perception standpoint, it means you're dead, right? Because if it was, you were wrong about the predator, it means you're dead. And so that's why we're so tied to being right. And I thought, well, So what's constantly happening is we're seeing reality now, and then we're trying to force it into what we think it should be instead of accepting it for what it is. So could I stand outside of my expectations and look at what is rather than what I expect it to be? And I realized in that moment that's what Eckhart Tolle was talking about. That is the the, the evolution state is not trying to see reality for what you think it is, but just being very acceptance of what is and dealing in what is not what you would like it to be. And so the question is, how do we get there? And the experiment I've been kind of doing myself and we're moving into like, you know, future, future books, but it was like, can I stop living through the world with expectations? Can I just eliminate expectations? And if I did, right, what would that look like? Right. How would I engage in the world? And it was like, you know, it's like, you know, things happen and you look at it and go, well, that's interesting. That's not what I thought was going to happen. But the evolutionary part is likely something bad is going to happen. But just standing and going, okay, you know, can I deal with what is instead of what I expect it to be? And would that shorten my time? And so the only power we have in that, if I'm explaining from the Eckhart Tolle person, is not in the present moment, because that doesn't explain it. It's in the present circumstance. Dealing in what is mm. rather than the world as you would like it to be. And it being acceptant of that and turning off the idea of expectations. So this idea of enlightenment is living in the world as it is mm. without expectations. 
Yeah, and you know, it's uh, true enough when we we look out through a, teles- a telescope, uh, looking through the Hubble telescope at the cosmos, and we ooh and we ah at how awesome and magnificent the explosions and the collisions and, and the forming of new stars is. It's just incredible. Oh, wow, it's amazing. And we accept that as it is. But then when you get down to our level, we don't accept it as it is what's going on in our in our little world as we see it. And uh, it seems to me like it's it's sort of a transition. You've got to take that observation of the universe, that ooing and the awing, and you've got to translate it into the world in which you live and go ahead and, ooh, that's... That's neat. What an adventure. What a journey. I'm supposed to enjoy the journey and not the destination. So this is pretty cool. No matter what is happening to you, um, this is just the way that it is. Now, that doesn't mean that uh, we're predestined for certain things. We have the ability. and I mean, is it or is it not true that we are who we are and where we are because of the choices we have made in the past. From your perspective, is that true or not? So the answer is yes, right? Mm-hmm. But the question is, do we have free will? Do we have choice? Aha, okay, good question. Right? And the answer is not in the way that you might think. Aha. Uh-huh. So here's the fundamental operating system of a human being. Human beings only act ever act in accordance with their beliefs based on their current physiological state, right? And so if you're in a good state, you might act one way and in a bad state, you might act another way. And so, you know, the idea is that you can only act in accordance with your beliefs. So in the moment, you don't actually have free will because you are playing out the program of your beliefs. But here's where free will comes in. Mm-hmm. And this is what everything our work is about. You have the power to change your beliefs, mm-hmm. right? And so if you think that your beliefs drive your behavior, if you want to change your behavior, you can't do it in the moment because you only can act in accordance with your beliefs according to your current physiological state. Mm-hmm. So if you want to change and you want to exercise free will is that you can go back and question those beliefs. And that's where we have free will and choice. By questioning what happened in the past and what you believe about that things, you are literally impacting the choices you will make in the future. Mm. But in the present, you can only act on the data that you have. Took me five years working at a Christian radio station in the 80s, early 90s to get through and release myself from the concept and I guess the fear as well that there was a heaven, that there was a hell, and especially that there was a devil. And, uh, and, and basically, I was able to codify it down to this. My God is not an extortionist. <laughs> That's the best way I can put it. My God, my higher power, uh, my divine whatever is not an extortionist. Um, and, uh, that's part of how I was able to shift out of that and take in some new ideas that have formed my beliefs of today. But I find that fascinating what you just said about free will, that 
what, what, what and and of course everybody's looking if not for the quick fix they're going to ask you James so how long does it take for me how long will it take for me to to uh, change those beliefs that I currently have that are controlling my my uh, destiny so to speak so that I can uh, make different choices how long will that take so that I can kind of plan for the future so the short answer is 10 years. That's the short right? answer. Okay. That's the short answer, but it doesn't <laughs> have to be 10 years. Okay. So if you look at it, most successful people are like, it takes 10 years to get from where you are to where, I mean, you've got to commit 10 years. And so, but I want to, I want to talk about the point you made about God being an extortionist for just a second. Then sure, I'll give okay. you a long answer. Okay. Because I had the same experience and I've never heard anybody describe it that way. And so what I got really frustrated with was people putting human characteristics on what I refer to as God, right? I'm like, it's like, so I heard this guy once and he, you know what he said? It's so funny. Standing in a room, you know, that everybody's very religious, very, you know, you know, blue collar. And he says, I refuse to believe in a being that passes judgment over me, that dictates whether I've been good whether I've been bad and passes judgment over me and decides, you know, what my turnout's going to be. Right. And everybody looked and went, Oh, how could you say that? And he goes, how could you talk about God like that? And he goes, Oh, I was talking about Santa Claus. Isn't it weird that you couldn't tell the difference? Hmm. Right. <laughs> because that's the experience that we yeah. want to assume that whatever, whatever, higher power you believe in is it's got the same characteristics that we do right yeah, yeah and that's the shortcoming now here's the long answer the long answer is is that it takes 10 years because you're flying blind you don't actually have awareness to what that process looks like and that's so it took me nine years from the time i got out of jail to make my first million dollars and it took me another two or three years to figure out happiness after that and so what I'm going to tell you is that you don't have to go through that struggle of figuring out all the answers are yourselves because that's actually what our book and movie is about. Mm -hmm. We did all the research. We did. We, we defined all of these things so that you could get the knowledge. It took us years and years and years to comprehend. And you can start where we ended and you can start shifting and changing your beliefs in a very short period of time. But, you know, the quickest, fastest way is to, you know, dive into the physiology, right? Yeah. That, that shifts everything. And so the, the shorter answer is it takes as long as it takes, mm -hmm. but it's a whole lot faster if you move into it with the knowledge of perception and emotions. And that's what our book, Perception, Scenes, Not Believing, and our movie is all about. We even have a sketch or an assessment that will tell you the areas that you're stuck about creating the life that you desire. And so it doesn't have to take that long, but it really comes down to the amount of resistance you have inside of you about questioning your current sets of beliefs or construct around the world. Mm. You go into it open and you have the right information, it can happen very quickly. If you resist every piece of information, then it's going to take a long time. Yeah. 
Well, unfortunately, this program can't go on for a long time because we have to make way. Even in podcasts, they've got to come to a conclusion. But we can always have you back for part three, four or five if 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 uh, we uh, we want to do that. And I really would like to have you back again to talk more about this. This is truly fascinating information. And I really do believe that it will help people to quite literally transform their lives, which is really what we're trying to do. It's it's where we're at. And and uh, where we want to be going. And I, I'm hoping that people will, will avail themselves. Uh, go to the website. The website is powerful-u.com. It is. Absolutely, it is time to evolve. Get a copy of not only the book, Perception, Seeing is Not Believing, It's Time to Evolve, but also the movie. You can get that at the website as well. And James, I want to thank you so much for joining us here on the program. And I'm hoping that uh, uh, the next time we get together, maybe the three of us, you and your wife uh, and I can have a nice chat about all of this. And from her perspective, as a woman uh, experiencing all of these things, uh, you know, it's it's uh, it's like one of the conclusions I came, I came to uh, one day was fear is a universal emotion. Our stories are all different, but we all experience in a man, in a manner of speaking, we all experience the same fear. So yes. you've got this wonderful platform this this opportunity for people to uh, to experience powerful com. that's where we want you to go and uh so who, yes I go right ahead one thing so guess what what because everybody's on quarantine and everybody's doing social distancing we've decided to screen our movie for free on our website and it is powerful dash the letter u just to be clear dot com and we are screening the movie right now for free until all this madness goes. So you can you can watch it on our website. You can watch it on the Powerful You yep. app. Just go to your, you know, whether it's a TV device or a phone device or right. tablet, Powerful You, and it bring up the Powerful Universe and just hit Explore, and you can watch the movie for free right now. And I have seen it. I loved it. I thought it was great, and I encourage people to watch it as well. And then, you know, get a copy of the book and, and dive deeper into this uh, and share this interview with your friends, uh, share the podcast. Uh, James, before we let you go, three final questions, uh, and I really do appreciate how much time you have given us. First one is, who is James Purpura? <laughs> James is a seeker that thirst for knowledge is beyond anything most people can imagine who's just trying to create the world that he wants his kids and grandkids to live in. What is it that you hope to or want to achieve through the work that you are doing now? To make people understand that success and happiness is all about service. People are asking the wrong question. They're asking, what can you do for me? Instead of asking the right question is, what can I do for you? And finally, what is your life's purpose? To spread love, light, happiness, joy, and giving people the full story so that they can learn how to take control, have the knowledge to learn how to take control of their lives and create whatever success looks like for them. I want to thank you again, uh, James Purpura, for joining us and giving us uh, so much time. And uh, we certainly hope that this whole process comes to a, a, a conclusion or at least a resolution where we can get back to whatever the new normal might be. Uh, but I guarantee you there, there are going to be some changes in all of our lives as the months go by that I look forward to. Uh, and I'm going to be watching uh, the journey. I'm going to take advantage of 
seeing how things unfold and and trying to uh, walk around metaphorically speaking with my mouth open going wow that is pretty cool instead of oh my god where where is my <laughs> where's the where's the old way of doing things i i'm really excited about that prospect uh, me too Thanks, Richard. I you, appreciate it. You bet, James. And I thank you folks for listening to Tell Me Your Story, New Paradigms for a New World. We are giving you choices and knowledge of those choices to help make your dreams come true. And until our next broadcast podcast, love to lull.